this week on Life and Faith. Well, of course, Jesus didn't say something directly about the conflict in Gaza, but he did cry over Jerusalem. And when he was weeping over the city that he loved and the people that he loved, he said to Jerusalem, if you only knew the things that would make for peace. We shouldn't wonder at why societies fall apart. There's nothing for the everyday person. It's anything but passive. It's anything but weak. As you've got religion in decline, you get ideologies substituting for religion. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. As we approach Christmas this year, It's impossible to entirely escape the heaviness of news from around the world, of conflict and destruction and loss. Ukraine, of course, and especially in the place from which the Christmas story originates. The shocking terrorist actions of Hamas in October, the brutal killing and capturing of so many Israelis, the subsequent bombing of Gaza and the huge loss of life there. The scale of human suffering in this conflict is overwhelming. Well, I wanted to talk to someone living in the area, and my guest today is the Reverend David Pelegi, an Anglican priest from Christchurch Anglican Church in Jerusalem, the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. They have services in English, Hebrew and Arabic. David grew up in the U.S., but has lived in Jerusalem for over 40 years. He's come to love the place, and at times, as Jesus did, to weep over it. The weight of the Israel-Palestine conflict must loom large for him this year as he prepares for Christmas services. I began our conversation by asking David what took him to Jerusalem in the first place. We came to Jerusalem in 1980 for a year or two. And uh, we have been here ever since. What took me here, it's quite interesting. You might say even mystical. There was just a a deep inner sense, a push, that for some reason, my wife and I, and we were newly married only a few months, we just felt strongly we had to come to Jerusalem. We didn't know why, but at the same time, we were young, maybe a little foolish. We had no obligations, and we thought, Why not start life as uh, an adventure or by being adventurous before we settled down? And uh, somehow you might say the magic, the pull, the calling, and we do feel like it was a God thing, kept us here. And uh, we never planned it or uh, expected it. And after 43 years, we kind of look back in amazement on how everything worked out. Well, after that long, it must feel like home to you. Oh, it does feel like home. And uh, Simon, I have to say that uh, when I first came to Israel, when I met uh, Jews, Arabs, and uh, I started to get to know Israeli society a little better, I uh, had this deep sense that all of this is familiar to me and even comfortable, Mm -hmm. despite uh, the fact that outsiders, especially Westerners, might think of society as being very dysfunctional. But I had been raised in an Italian-American home, and uh, the culture of my home life was very similar to the lives of Jews and Arabs here. So you might say I I was prepared in a way for this assignment. Now, when you meet people who haven't been to Israel or they're perhaps just 
getting there. How do you describe life there? Like, what are the most standout aspects of it that you want to convey to people? Well, uh, on one hand, what you see on the news is that life here is something of a routine emergency. I mean, there's always some kind of a crisis uh, or always some kind of a drama. I think in part that's because we have not only an unstable political situation, but I think you also have two traumatized populations, uh, Palestinians and uh, Israeli Jews. And uh, I think that contributes, you might say, to the instability that exists in this country. But also there's um, some very marvelous, marvelous things about living in Israel. When they do these surveys, I'm not sure how much stock to put in them, but they interview people from around the world and find out how happy they are. Mm. Israel always comes up in the top 10. So Israel's always one of the happiest countries in the world. And you can ask, well, how can that be? Because what you see on the news is violence, instability, controversy, political upheaval, terrorism. But, uh, you know, the nature of family life, the way that solidarity exists in the society between uh, different people and uh, different groups. The fact that uh, living here in Israel gives people a lot of meaning and purpose other than just living from paycheck to paycheck. So these are, in some ways, the very positive and refreshing things about uh, life here. And uh, it's probably different from many Western countries. Now, you've, you're the rector of the church there. So you're right in the center, aren't you? You're right in the old city, I mm-hmm. believe. That's right. What are the people like who come to your church? Well, uh, you might say we're diverse with a capital <laughs> D. Uh, we have a congregation, for example, that meets and speaks Arabic. We have a Hebrew-speaking congregation of Jewish Christians or other local Christians who want to worship in Hebrew. Uh, We have an international congregation that meets on Sundays, and uh, probably people from 40 nationalities uh, worship and pray together uh, weekly. And uh, we have many, many local visitors, many Jews and Arabs come to Christchurch and they hang out and they drink coffee. Thousands of Israelis come and want to learn something about the history of the church because it is quite a unique church. And then we have on top of that visitors from all around the world. And uh, there are many Protestants who uh, see Christ churches, quote unquote, their church in Jerusalem. And so ministering or interacting with all these different groups is quite stimulating and, uh, to tell you the truth, quite exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. It must be amazing, though, to come from the U.S. where you grew up, but then to run a church in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus spent so much of his time and met his death, and it's you know, from where the whole sort of story emanates, and have such proximity to that story. Uh, you must feel that, and visitors must feel that for sure. Well, there's no question that geography, wherever you may find yourselves, geography is important, and it does have a huge influence on people. And again, maybe some of this has been lost in the West, where people might be cosmopolitan or uh, think of themselves as somehow detached from local history Mm. or their local context. But geography, 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 it is uh, huge. And the fact that these 
holy places or these historical places are all around, you know, they're terribly inspiring. And uh, even for those of us who live here, it functions in the same way uh, as it does for pilgrims coming from abroad. Because when, for example, you drive up to Tiberias and you look at the Sea of Galilee, uh, of course you're going to start thinking of the gospel stories and uh, Jesus in the way that he traveled around the lake or traveled across the lake. And, and it does something in the sense that it just says to an individual, you know, this certainly has to be true. This certainly has to be true. So seeing the Bible or the, and especially the gospel stories uh, in this geographical context is not only inspiring, but it uh, and somehow deepens faith especially as you read the stories and you can see them in their geographical context. What's, of course, needed is to understand them in their linguistic context and in the, especially in the Jewish cultural context uh, in which they took place. Many people would look at a place like Israel, Palestine, and think it's a very clear example of the way in which religion is harmful and that it drives division and hatred. It's, it must at times be hard to escape that feeling. Oh my goodness. Uh, do we have an hour to talk about <laughs> this? Because uh, religion does certainly play a role here, but everybody is religious. Everybody is religious in, in one way or another. Uh, and it's easy to take pot shots, for example, at uh, organized religion or religion that's uh, historic uh, and structured. But I would say that uh, religion has a very positive role. And in the end, it might be the very key that will um, bring reconciliation. Now, I know many people look at the situation and they're very fatalistic and they think that will never happen. And people throw up their hands and say, the Middle East, the Middle East, it's always going to be a basket case. People will be killing each other until Jesus comes back. Uh, but the right kind of religion is the answer to all of this. And for all of those who talk about religion as being the problem, well, I'll just point to, for example, Germany in the Second World War, which had a religion, yes, of National Socialism, or Joseph Stalin, who had a secular religion. So secular ideologies have done far more damage, far more damage, and killed far more people uh, in the 20th century than, for example, Christianity or Judaism has. And yet we're, we are speaking at a very painful time uh, in the region. I wonder how, even just from a personal point of view, how you reacted on October the 7th when uh, there were all these dreadful attacks by Hamas of the Israeli people. Yeah, it was, uh, of course, shocking uh, and shocking to the core. Now, Hamas, we've always known, is an Islamic death cult a form of Islamic extremism that glorifies martyrdom and uh, murder. But uh, to attack Israel on this scale and in this way was not only audacious, but surely they knew the consequences that would follow. And this is where uh, you hear all kinds of criticism of Israel, which, by the way, is not immune to criticism. But the criticism is, well, Israel is not acting with proportional force uh, in Gaza. Israel has tanks and F-15s and drones, and it's a high-tech army, 
uh, and therefore it has to exercise perhaps more caution. But surely the leaders of Hamas knew the consequences of all this. And uh, this is what's really, really tragic, that there has to be so much suffering. And in part, at least in this case, I don't want to talk about the whole uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue or what's going on in the West Bank, for example. But uh, certainly in this case, Hamas bears the blame and uh, is responsible for this. And everybody agrees, whether it's the USA or the EU or most Arab states, at least they speak in private, that Hamas has to go. And uh, we hope and pray that what human beings and maybe even the demonic meant for evil for the peoples of this country, whether Jews or Arabs, we hope and pray that God will turn all of this to good. And that despite the tragic loss of life, that uh, Gaza will be free of Hamas and the Palestinian people there will be able to live in peace and to prosper. I just want to jump in here. As you can tell, David Pelagi is working in a complex environment and has a unique perspective on the situation in his country, working as he does with Israelis and Palestinians. I wanted to know his thoughts on his church's potential role in helping to bring about peace. Our church was uh, founded in 1823, and it was founded in part to be a parish church for anyone who wanted to attend, but it was also founded to be uh, a church for Jewish Christians, uh, Jewish people who wanted to follow Jesus and yet still retain a Jewish identity. And it's always been our understanding that, you might say, the key to reconciliation and ultimate peace here is the way that Jews and the non-Jewish world interact together. And so it's always been our goal to have Jews and Arabs work together to try to build bridges by uh, especially using the resources uh, of the state of Israel to help Palestinians who might be in difficult situations. So we look for opportunities uh, to have this kind of cooperation. So we serve the old folks uh, in our neighborhood because we're in a Palestinian neighborhood. We serve them breakfast once a week. They come and have a social club. But uh, many of those who are serving these Palestinians will be Jewish Israelis or even Jewish Israelis who are believers in Jesus. We're always trying to find ways to build bridges of understanding. And I'm not doing it with a seminar or an abstract uh, philosophical lecture in a classroom. We're doing it on the ground. In recent, before the Gaza war, uh, we were hosting or helping cancer patients from Gaza uh, get treatment in Israeli or Palestinian hospitals, or we're distributing food to local Palestinians and to those in the West Bank, or perhaps our biggest effort in terms of uh, helping the local population is that we have a team of lawyers, and these lawyers, two Arab Christians and one Jewish Christian, uh, they are helping poor Jews and poor Arabs who get stuck with government bureaucracy or who become victims of domestic violence. Uh, who can't get uh, some kind of justice because their landlord, uh, for example, is cheating them. And so when you have an Arab Christian helping a Jewish person, right, almost for free, 
what does it do? It breaks down all kinds of stereotypes and builds bridges. Or when I have, we have a Jewish lawyer helping Palestinians, right, get the pension that's due to them from the national insurance. This is uh, the way that we are um, working as a church. I know it's not going to change the world, but uh, we do have a team of Jews and Arabs who work here. All of them are followers of Jesus, yet all maintain an Arab-Palestinian identity, a Jewish-Israeli identity, and uh, it's our aim to show that diversity is a good thing, but that diversity is not the end in itself. What works and what might be the biblical goal or biblical intention is that in diversity, yes, you have unity. And uh, this is actually the message of the gospel. The gospel message is that people from all nations and all languages and all cultures should keep their nationality or their ethnicity or their language or their culture. But they actually, instead of killing each other, fighting with each other, or always trying to dominate each other, actually can come together in unity. And that unity is through the the message and work of Jesus. And that can point the way, you know, to a very divided world, right, in which Mm. we are failures at, uh, you might say, relationships, relationships between individuals, relationships and families, relationships between nations, cultures, et cetera, et cetera. This uh, rot has been going on since the earliest days of the book of Genesis. And uh, this is the power of the gospel. And it speaks very clearly, and it's a message that I think all the world needs to hear, but it's uh, very relevant for us in Jerusalem. It's amazing to hear those stories of Jewish people, Palestinian people working together. They're not stories you hear very often, but they seem to be the glimmers of hope for an otherwise what looks like an impossible situation from the outside. It is difficult, and there's no, there's no denying it. And I'm not trying to be a uh, naive optimist, but I do believe that there is a future hope and uh, more than a possibility of a reconciliation uh, between Jews and Arabs. And I think those who are followers of Jesus are those who are committed to uh, the gospel of reconciliation uh, certainly need to play a part and to do what we can in this. And uh, we're hoping and praying And uh, we're not in despair at uh, all the events that are happening. We are saddened and even shocked, but it's not going to take away our ultimate vision and hope that the, uh, what we call the Arab-Israel conflict may largely become a thing of the past. You're listening to Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Reverend David Pelegi, who is the rector of Christ Church Jerusalem, the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. It's located in the heart of the old city. In the lead up to Christmas this year, celebrating the birth of the Prince of Peace, peace must seem like a distant and impossible dream. How is it that he doesn't despair? You know, it's, uh, you might say it's the grace of God. It's the vision that uh, we have from the scripture in which ultimately there will be 
a uh, reconciliation or a peace that comes about because of a spiritual change uh, in people. Uh, you might say a redirection, even a, a repentance. And uh, when I talk like this, I don't mean to point fingers at Jews and Arabs. I, I always think that these things should uh, certainly begin with us, uh, that we should be always the first to change or always the first to uh, you know, go in a, a new direction. Uh, maybe to admit our faults and to humble ourselves or to be modest. But once we do that, we can show mercy to both Jews and Arabs. And by the way, when I talk about showing mercy to Jews and Arabs, I'm not talking about compromising with the evil of Hamas. If we can show mercy and empathy to both sides, then I think there is certainly a hope for the future. So uh, I'm not giving up, but it is a confidence based on for those of your listeners who may not be Christian, but it is based on a religious ideology and a hope in the future. We've seen other countries change in recent years, South Africa, Eastern Europe, and it's not impossible that sometime in the future there will certainly be a change here. Now, I don't know how much attention you pay to this, but in the, as people in the West are reacting now to the current conflict, there does seem to be a very polarizing aspect to this. People seem to be either wholeheartedly on one side or the other. And I think your point about not being able to empathize with both sides seems to be problematic. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, that in our society you have a rejection of religion. And in many cases, the critique of religion is that it's too black and white or it's too fundamentalist. And yet, what do we see, especially in the secular world, is nothing more than a secular fundamentalism, where people become uh, very polarized, and they're very rigid, and they can't look at a situation with any kind of nuance or any kind of gray, or they can't do the moral arithmetic. I mean, uh, just for example, you know, there are many wrong things about Israeli policy on the West Bank and the way that Israel over the years has neglected trying to deal uh, with the Palestinian issue. And by the way, it's two-sided. I mean, the Palestinians uh, have also been less than willing, certainly not willing to compromise as Israelis have been. On the other hand, you have this Islamic death cult uh, backed by Iran in connection with uh, Hezbollah and other Islamic extremist groups around the world. And people find it very difficult to kind of do the, what you might call the moral arithmetic. No, we can't necessarily agree with all of Israel's policies. But on the other hand, we should not be able to tolerate Hamas. Uh, and we can understand why Israel has to destroy uh, Hamas. But uh, all of this does challenge many different kinds of Western ideologies challenges the progressives, it challenges those who are conservative. And again, I hope and pray that this will be some kind of a breaking point that uh, will allow Western societies and Western universities and cultural institutions to somehow free themselves from a, a simplistic moralism. The challenge is huge in terms of that and trying to, as you say, have some nuance and depth of understanding that would help to wrestle with this issue as it goes on and we've got ceasefires and then hostilities resuming and massive loss of life 
you must find yourself scratching your head about real-life solutions. Well, for, there's no question that uh, the future of Gaza, what happens to Gaza and how it will be governed, is a, certainly a, a huge conundrum. And I don't think, uh, at least officially, Israel's come up with a, you know, a very good response to that. But, of course, we are saddened and shocked by uh, the loss of life, the taking of hostages, the brutality of Hamas. So, again, there's a, it's just a question of the moral arithmetic, but it doesn't make it uh, easier to see the loss of life. Jews and Arabs are made in God's image, and all of this is horribly, horribly tragic. Equally as tragic is the explosion of anti-Semitism throughout the world. And uh, here we have, you might say, a hatred, the oldest hatred, that never seems to go away. And again, it shows uh, where we are as human beings. We always have to find a victim or find someone to blame uh, for the mess that we find ourselves in. We can rarely, never blame ourselves. We always have to look for that uh, scapegoat. And throughout history, that scapegoat is more often than not been the Jewish people. So you could be a left-winger, a right-winger, you could be a capitalist, a socialist, you could be a Muslim, a Christian, and uh, it will always boil down to something the Jews are doing. And they will be accused of, you might say, our own failures. It's a very common theme, isn't it, throughout history. Now, David, you have Christmas services coming up. I'm very interested to know, as you sit down in your study this year, to prepare what you might plan to say to your congregation that could be of some comfort to them? What might that be? What Christmas is all about is celebrating the birth of Jesus. So, you know, in all of this discussion, because we haven't uh, necessarily focused totally on the spiritual aspect, but I think as Christians, and especially as Christians who live in this part of the world, we want to take everything back to Jesus, right? And just begin to ask what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus say? Well, of course, Jesus didn't say something directly about the conflict in Gaza, but he did cry over Jerusalem. And when he was weeping over the city that uh, he loved and the people of the city that he loved, he said to Jerusalem, if you only knew the things that would make for peace. And that is a good question for Jews, Arabs, again, Australians, Austrians, Yes, if we only knew the things that would make for peace. So I think that teaching or expounding upon not just the baby Jesus, right, but uh, the teachings of Jesus and encouraging as many people to put them into practice will be the thing that can be helpful to the societies, the different people groups around us. So we're celebrating Jesus, the light of the world, but Jesus is only the light of the world if people put his teaching uh, into practice or we model our lives after him. And the great failure of Western Christianity, more often than not, is that uh, we have a lot of people who believe things. They believe Christianity in general, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But we don't have many people who actually follow and put uh, these things into practice. Now, many of the, the local churches, out of grief and being in a state of mourning, they're not going to celebrate Christmas. They are going to simply have religious services. I think we're going to take the opposite approach. 
not that we're callous towards uh, the death around us, but uh, not only will we have religious services, but we are also going to celebrate because it's in that celebration that we can find hope. And uh, generally at Christmas time, we have many thousands of uh, Israeli and Arab visitors who come to us for an open house. And uh, they might be Muslims, they, they might be Jews, and uh, they all ask the question, why are we celebrating? And uh, we have an opportunity to talk about not just the baby Jesus, but finally the Jesus that teaches, models, dies to put an end ultimately to sin and death and rises from the dead so that we don't have to live under the spectrum of the fear of death and can have life before death, actually, not to mention life after death. So that's our message. Uh, it might be a little controversial here in Jerusalem, the fact that we're going to celebrate this year. So stay tuned. I'll either get a lot of hate mail or uh, we might have some extremists show up on the 24th and the 25th to tell us we're not doing the right thing. Just down the road in Bethlehem was where Jesus was born. It's amazing that you're, as you say, the geography, the proximity to this story. Mm-hmm. It's all around mm-hmm. you. What does this Christmas story mean for people today? Why don't we look at it uh, slightly historically? And I'm sure you've teased this out on one program or another. Mm. Uh, The world is in a mess, but what has Christianity brought to the world? What has this baby Jesus brought to the world when people have taken him really seriously? They've allowed not just baby Jesus, but the risen Jesus to transform their lives to bring them to a place where actually they can be peacemakers themselves or bring uh, reconciliation or to bring messages of hope. And we all know that Christianity has had an incredible impact on the world. The concept of caring for the sick, uh, helping the poor, being merciful, forgiving your enemies. Uh, Much of the Western world lives by these values, even though they may not, right? They may not be Christians. These are the values of Jesus. And so Jesus started a revolution, but the revolution is far from over and in large part depends on our diligence and our obedience, again, to put these things into practice. And some of us might practice it 10% or 20% or 30%, but it's our hope and prayer that uh, all of us can be more intentional about putting his message and by the way, how his message was interpreted and fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament, putting that into practice in a very diverse and complicated world. Things aren't perfect. Things aren't always black and white. But again, Jesus leaves us some principles, and we can certainly try to live them out with God's help and God's grace. But if we want to change the world and make a difference, then let's start with ourselves make sure that we're the kind of people that are modest enough or are humble enough to allow God's grace to work through us and to work amongst people, not as some kind of someone who is superior or we have our act together and you don't, but again, to work at the level of mercy uh, and empathy and at the same time point to there's a way out of this dysfunction and there's a way out of this morass. There is healing, there is reconciliation, there is wholeness, which can be described as as holiness. I think that's the message of Jesus. 
That's ultimately the message of the kingdom of heaven, right? The birth of Jesus, you know, we're told that his kingdom will have no end. His rule and reign in the lives of those who call him Lord. That will continue to expand until the day God says, now history is coming to an end. And uh, there will be, you might say, the winding up of uh, this present age, and we have the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. This is our last Life and Faith for 2023. Thank you so much for being with us this year. We've loved bringing you all sorts of conversations that we hope you have found as interesting and challenging as we have, and also inspiring in some way, and giving you some things to talk about with your friends. We love meeting our Life and Faith listeners, as we do from time to time, and also hearing from you. Do send us a message at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'll be back in 2024 with more guests and topics and conversations, and we'll really look forward to that after a break. I hope you get a rest over Christmas. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, enjoy your summer. Otherwise, rug up. I'm going to leave it to David Pelleggi from Christ Church in Jerusalem to offer up a final word and a Christmas greeting. I wish all of you in Australia a very happy Barbie at the beach. And uh, I trust, at least on Christmas Day, that you and the entire nation will have no worries, literally. <laughs> <laughs>